0: Notice in verse number 1, in Isaiah chapter 54, the Bible says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent. And let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment, you ever wondered how long a moment is? Somebody said this one time. I think my dad I heard my dad say this about as long as a piece of rope. A you know, moment's different to all of us, right? Nobody knows how long a moment is. It's a very inexact term. We're not sure how long a moment is. And we're not even sure when you qualify it with a word like the word small. We kind of get the idea that it wasn't a long period of time. But we don't really exactly know. It just says, for a small moment have I forsaken thee. But with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that you would help us as we gather around your word. Lord, use your Holy Spirit to illuminate this passage of Scripture. Lord, please direct my tongue, direct my thoughts, so that it might be exactly in line with what you want us to learn from your word tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen if you come to verse 7, and the Bible says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, there ought not be very many thoughts in all of Scripture, or very many statements in all of Scripture, that should cause the Christian to pause, like this one does. There ought not be many things in all the Word of God that ought to send chills down our spine and a concern growing in our heart that the God of the world and our Creator could forsake us. That's a scary thought. Now obviously we know in terms of the New Testament believer... The Lord seals us with the Holy Spirit of God. For the Bible says, For ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in the Christian's life. And I'm here to tell you, No matter what you do, No matter where you go, The Holy Spirit of God goes with you. That ought to be something we say amen about right there. And we ought we ought to probably keep that in mind when we go places. That there's probably places God don't want to go that you drag Him along. So the Lord never truly departs from the New Testament believer's life. But I do believe that there are things in our life that can separate us from His presence and from His power. There are things in our life that can quench the Holy Spirit of God so that we would feel no more saved than the lostest sinner on this entire world. I believe that can happen. I believe the Bible says the Lord is far from the wicked. We ought to be careful we don't qualify as one of them. This passage, as I read it, I, just, I come to it and I pause because it scares me to death that the God that I know and the God that I love and the God that I need to operate tomorrow could possibly not be with me at all. That scares me. I want to preach you tonight a sermon entitled this, Seize Your Moment. Seize Your Moment. You see, I live in a house with three women and one boy with me, and so we're outnumbered. And I'm trying to teach these children how to uh, behave and how to, you know, share and be kind to one another. And I'm just telling you right now, uh, Caitlin is the bigger of the three right now. And so she kind of bosses people around a little bit. And she tells Bailey, she's like the third parent in the house. I'm sure if you have children, you know how that is. But she she kind of just tells them what to do. And, and uh, Bailey, like I mentioned earlier, she's just a firecracker. You don't know when she's going to go off. And um, Thomas is very unique because as he ages and he grows, we get to see his personality kind of develop. And uh, if I had one thing to say about Thomas, I'd probably call him the opportunist. Because Thomas isn't allowed into a lot of the things, and he's not allowed to do a lot of the things that the girls are allowed to do, or he's not allowed to have some of the things that the girls have. But if you're not watching, he will take the opportunity. For instance, this evening, just even before church, right before church in fact, uh, I Bailey had woken up and she came to me and said, Daddy, can I have a snack? And I said, sure, baby, that's fine. You can get a snack. But uh, if you get a snack, here's what I want you to do. And I'm trying to teach my daughter how to be thoughtful. I'm trying to teach my daughter how to uh, be sharing and, and considerate. And so I said, if you're going to get a snack, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get whatever you get for Bubba. And I want you to open up the package and give it to Bubba. And so I'm just trying to teach her... It's not all about you. When you go and you... You you, you know, for instance, if I'm going to QT... Well, let me say it like this. If you're going to QT and I'm in the room, you might as well just offer me if I want something, right? I'll just put that on you and not on me. But... uh... You know, I want to teach my kids to be thoughtful. And so that was the way that I was going to do it. And, and so Bailey was struggling a little bit with this idea. And so she went, and I think she thought she was just going to get one packet of uh, uh, fruit chews, like fruit gummies down, and she was going to open the package and give Bubba one. You know how that is, one of the 25 that's in there. I said, no, Bailey, you're not understanding me. I need you to go, and I need you to get one for you. And I need you to get one for Bubba. And I need you to open the packet for him. And then I need you to get one for you as well. And I tried to explain it to her. And she, it finally kind of sunk in what she was supposed to do. And so she uh, lays hers down on the table unopened. And she goes back into the kitchen. And she gets her a package. And so she comes in. And now she's got two packets of these fruit uh, 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 gummy chews. And uh, so she opens one. and And she hands Bubba his. And I said, Bailey, you have to open it for Bubba. He doesn't know how to open it. You have to open it for him. And I, I didn't want to do it for him. I wanted her to do it for him so she could be the one sharing and kind of help this life lesson because I'm a real dad. You know, I'm thinking 18, 19 years down the road, what type of human being am I going to raise? I don't want them to be like me and Mandy. I want them to be better, you know? And and uh, and so I'm trying to trying to get these kids and teach them these lessons and And today, well, when she got hers open, she dumped them all out on the table. And so she was trying to open the other one. She was having trouble. She came over to dad and she said, dad, can you help me? And so I'm I'm opening the package and I look and I see Thomas making a mad dash to the fruit chews that have now been poured out on the table. And he goes and he grabs two of the biggest handfuls that these little bitty hands could grab. And he just goes, Just sucks them up. I mean, we just started calling him Kirby, like a vacuum cleaner, okay? Because he just sucked them right off the table. And Bailey's standing there with a half-open bag of fruit juice saying, What happened? Dad, your life lessons are terrible! (laughs) But I was like, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll give you Thomas's, and that's why it's always smart to be considerate. Because when others aren't, you can take theirs. And, uh, uh, you know, you just try to make it a lesson, but... Uh, Thomas is the guy, he is the opportunist. He is the seize the moment kind of guy. Man, if you set an open drink down on a table, you just rest assured Thomas will find himself bathing in that open container, pouring it all over the floor and most likely himself. He is an opportunist. He has no trouble seizing the moment. But I think sometimes maybe in our lives... We are aware of the state of our Christian life. I I have no doubt in my mind that there is someone in this room tonight that is not as close to God tonight as they have been in the past. I have no doubt in my mind that there is someone in this room tonight that their prayer life is not near what it used to be for the Lord. I have no doubt in my mind that there's somebody who used to be concerned about sinners and is just simply not concerned as they used to be. Now, that doesn't mean you're not concerned, but that just means that the state of your Christian life is not what it ought to be right now. And you are, of all people, the most aware of that. Here's what I want to do tonight. I want to offer you a moment. A life-changing opportunity. A moment to where you can come to God and you can come to a God that will forgive and restore like no other can. The only thing from keeping you the best Christian that you know is you. Tonight, will you seize your moment? Tonight, I want to share with you, first of all, as we get started, we must see the picture of barrenness in this passage of Scripture. Verse number 1 don't miss this, the Bible says, sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. The picture here is of a woman who cannot have children, a barren woman. A woman in Eastern culture, this was part of her life, was to be a mother to the children of her husband. It was, it was very important for her and it meant a great deal to her. And, and the scripture here is giving the idea that there is a woman who cannot have children. And in fact, the scripture is talking about Israel and it's comparing them to a woman who is unable to conceive. And while we may not understand the full depth of this in, in Western culture... There was tremendous shame that was accompanied with not being able to have children. You'll recall in the story of Hannah, Samuel's mother, how that uh, her husband had another wife and her other wife sounded a little bit like a, a French bread sandwich, but her name was Penina and, and uh, she, would, uh, uh, she would mock Hannah for not being able to have a child. In fact, the Bible says year after year they would go and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. And year after year, this she used this to provoke Hannah. She made fun of her. She mocked her because it was just natural and part of the culture that a woman bears children. And those that could not had tremendous shame placed upon them. Someone... Uh, Uh, In in 2008, wrote an article in Newsweek about Eastern culture and uh, about women being unable to bear children. I want to read you some of that article. The stigma that infertile women face can infiltrate every aspect of life. They may not even be invited to weddings or other important events. People see them as having a bad eye that will make you infertile too. Infertile women are considered inauspicious, says one expert. Other people simply don't want to have them around at joyous occasions, uh, says one professor. Their reasoning, because they could spoil it. You see, it was more than, uh, in Western culture, it's a sad thing when a mother cannot have a child when she wants to have a child. It's a very, very sad thing. But usually we pity them and we sympathize with them and we feel bad for them. But in Eastern culture, there was tremendous shame placed upon the lady that could not bear children. In context of the passage, it's speaking of Israel. And there was tremendous shame that Israel was in right now because this is during the Babylonian captivity. The only reason that Israel ever fell prey to their enemies was because they had failed in obeying their Lord. God said, If you'll obey me, I'll do great things through you. But every time they disobeyed, God brought somebody down the line to somewhat chastise them. Babylon was one of those uh, uh, kingdoms and they came and now there's just a remnant of people of Jews there in Babylonian captivity and they're 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 a shell of their former self you remember the great kingdom that had David at the helm you remember the great kingdom who would go in and just defeat even the superpowers of the day you remember the great kingdom that had the Philistines on the run you remember the great kingdom that defeated the Goliath you remember the a great kingdom, but that is not the kingdom we speak of now. We speak of a kingdom that spiritually is spoiled. We speak of an idolatrous nation. We speak of a people whose priests are wicked, whose culture is wicked, and they're in the middle of a wicked, wicked kingdom. That's where we're at. And here's the problem with it. It is as if God, well, God could not receive glory from them. It is as if what they could have been for God was not able to be done because of them. In other words, God wanted to show His magnificent mercy through them. God wanted to do great things for them. God wanted to allow His goodness and His mercy to be a testament to every other nation that He was, in fact, the one true God. But now that Israel is where they are, in captivity to another nation, serving the gods of those nations. The shame is, God's receiving no glory from their current state. Let me ask you, how much glory is God receiving from your current state? You see, the idea is that the Christian life would be one of great power. One of great victory. The Bible says for we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I mean, we have power. We have the spirit of God residing in us. And we have the power of God at our everyday beck and call. We have a a life of prayer. And we we have the word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. I mean, we have every tool that we need at our disposal to be a, a really strong Christian. Are you? Are you? Or are you like Israel, maybe serving something you ought not be serving? In bondage and captive to something that you ought not to be in bondage or captive to. I mean, we are to be conquerors for Him, but more often than not, I think we're being Conquered. There's great great shame that came with this. There's also great sorrow. You know why there was great sorrow? Is because Israel knew that where they were was a really bad place. It was more than just nationally they were in subjection to another nation. It was more than that. It was the fact that Their city had been destroyed. It was that they had been besieged. You remember in Daniel, the Babylonians came and they besieged the city there in the book of Daniel. And it it was more than just they had been defeated. It was that they had no joy at all because of the circumstances they found themselves in. See, the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept and we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You see, by them being in captive, they were spiritually not in the place that they needed to be, and they were sorrowful because of it. You know what I've noticed about every good Christian that I've ever known? When they get, right, when they get wrong with God, they immediately know it, and they're miserable until they get right with Him. Even David said, uh, My tears have watered my couch. Uh, all the night long, my tears have watered my bed. That's what David says. Why? Because he wasn't right with God and it was on his mind constantly and it was on his heart constantly because when the Christian is not right with God, we cannot be right with anyone. I've noticed at times in my life when I've gotten out of the the will of God or or I've not been right in my relationship with God, it's unique and it's strange to see how my relationship with my wife begins to get on the rocks. It's, it's, It's amazing because when we're not right uh, vertically will never be right horizontally. There's great sorrow that accompanied the nation of Israel. There's great sorrow that accompanied a woman of, uh, that could not have children. Hannah, the Bible says, therefore she wept and did not eat. The Bible tells us that she wept and prayed bitterly unto the Lord. There was not only sorrow and there was not only shame, but there was thirdly a solution. There was a solution. I want you to notice this in verse 54. The Bible starts off with a solution. It says, sing. Sing, O barren. Now that seems very counterintuitive, doesn't it? The fact that God is requiring and encouraging them to sing a song, but they haven't had their prayer answered yet. They're still barren. They're still in a foreign and strange land. They're still in a place of, of great sorrow and shame. But God says, how about you just sing? Well, why would we sing in a strange land? Why would we sing in hard times? Oftentimes, it's because, the reason we can't sing is because our faith won't allow us to. You remember the story of the angelic visitors that came to Abraham. And you remember how they came in and they told Abraham that he would receive a son of promise. And there was Sarah in the background. And the Bible says she laughed within herself. And she says, can I have pleasure in, in my, my old age? Can I have a child in my old age? And, and the angelic visitors, they say to her, they say, is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, you just think of the hardest thing that you can. For Sarah, it was the idea that she could not have children in her old age. And they, they said, Is that really where your faith stops? Is, you know, Abraham's followed God to this point. He's been faithful in following God. He left the nation. He, he left Haran. He left all of his family. He followed God in faith. He did everything that he could. He's brought you this far. He's brought you through great trials. But, but this, this is where you draw the line. This is where you think it gets too hard for God. Where does it get too hard for God for you? Is it, is it uh, for a child that's gone astray? Is, is it for a loved one that you've been praying for and hasn't been saved yet? What is it that you just think is too hard for God to do? Is it someone with a tremendously sad diagnosis? Is it some doctor that said it's terminal? Is it the car accident? What is it in your life that you say, nope, that's just too hard for God? God says, I'm always the solution to the problem. God says, I've always got the answer that you need. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Psalm chapter 40 verse 2 and 3 is a very famous passage of Scripture. But it says... He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto your God. I don't care what the situation is, it's never too hard for God. And it's never too too sad for the Christian to sing when God's involved. I want you to not only see this, this evening the picture of barrenness, but I want you to see thirdly the preparation for blessings. This is pretty unique and I, I don't want you to get lost at any point in the, the sermon because the, the first verse it is it is definitely a, a very important verse to study and understand that the state of the nation of Israel I mean, things are looking terrible for them but God is not here to chew them out and God is not here to criticize them God is here to offer and extend to them hope Notice in verse number 2, the Bible says, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Could you imagine telling Father Abraham... Well, could you imagine telling him that he was going to have the most annoying children's church song named after him, right? I don't know what that was about. I felt like that was an aerobics class gone wrong, actually. But, but could you imagine being Abraham when God tells you, I'm going to make your children as the stars in the sky. I'm going to make your children as the sand on the shore. As Ab- if I was Abraham, I'd probably sit there and say, there's no way. I just can't even imagine that. Well, here's what you've got to imagine, is you've got to imagine a very, very small remnant of people in captivity and God coming to them and saying, hey, you need to, you need to prepare for a real blessing to come your way. And they look around and they say, blessing? Are you kidding me? We're in Babylon. What kind of blessings come in Babylon. They tell us where to go, they tell us what to do, they tell us to jump, and all we can say is how high. What kind of blessings can come in Babylon? But did you know in scripture, preparation always precedes blessings? It always does. You've got to prepare for God to do something great in your life. You don't just wake up one day and he do something great. In fact, my mind, not in the sermon, but my mind goes to Samuel. How long did Samuel serve at the temple before God says, Hey, hey Samuel, it's time for me to use you. What was happening? Samuel was serving Eli, and he was doing all that he could to serve Eli and, and serve the Lord. And, and yet the Lord had not even yet appeared to him. What was that? That was a man preparing for the blessings of God later in life. What we want is we want the get-rich get scheme in the Christian life. We want God to do some great miracle in our life, and then in reaction to that, we'll start to serve Him faithfully. That's what we want. We want God to come down and say, Hey, I've got a miracle I'm just going to throw in your lap. And uh, after that, you can do whatever you want to do. But, but I know you haven't been all that you need to be for me. And I know you haven't been serving me the way that you should be. And I know you haven't been faithful to me the way that you should be. But I've just got a big old miracle I want you to take part in. That doesn't happen in Scripture. In fact, you'll notice in verse number 2, God tells them, it says, Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. In other words, they're probably living in like the small Coleman tents that you get at Walmart, you know? Like the real measly ones. If you leave them out in a thunderstorm, they're going to get blown away. That's the the small tents they're living in. And God says, hey, I'm going to do a great thing in your presence. I'm going to bless you so much you can't even handle it. So I need you to to enlarge your tent. I need you to go buy a bigger tent. I'll never forget Amy telling me we were going to have a third child. I wasn't ready for that at all. I didn't want a third child. We were drowning with two. (laughs) And Amy said, babe, I'm pregnant. And I said, are you sure? (laughs) Not with me. (laughs) it ain't mine, (laughs) I I wasn't ready for it, and as soon as she, as soon as she told me, I started to thinking of the things we were going to have to change in our life, I'll never forget one of the first thoughts was, where are we going to put another stinking gargantuan car seat, these car seats now, it's like lazy boys, I don't know if you've seen them lately, they got air ride technology and all this stuff. I mean, they're going to have heated and air conditioned seats before too long. It's just unbelievable. And they make them so large that if you drive a medium sized vehicle at all, two will swallow that thing. The first thought I had was, we're going to have to get a new car. I thought to myself, we live in a three bedroom, two bath house and now we have, what, five of us? That don't even, that don't even make sense mathematically. Mathematically what are we going to do? Have We're going to have people sleeping on top of each other. I mean, this is going to be terrible. And that was my, my mind. I just didn't know what to do. And then I started doing research and found out the beauties of minivans. And you can make fun of me all you want, man. Them things rock, okay? Minivans are where it's at. If it, if they make a four-wheel drive minivan, you let me know. Especially one that can carry a deer in the back of it, I will drive that thing. But But... What happens when you find out certain things? You've got to prepare for it. That's what God says. He says, hey, I'm not going to send the people your way yet. I need you to enlarge your tents. I need to make, make your ha- habitations larger. I need you to strengthen the stakes now. I need you to prepare for the blessings that are to follow. All it is is it's a pure faith challenge. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 11 It's a The hall of faith, certainly. And and we find out many great people who had great faith. The Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In verse number 3, it says this. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, the Hebrew writer is trying to tell us that the same way that we trust Scripture... When the Bible says, in the beginning was God, and, and God made the heavens and the earth, when he, he did all of that, we trust in that, and our faith is placed in that, and, and me and you didn't have to be there, and Moses wasn't there, and yet we know by faith God made the worlds. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that all things that were made, were made by Him and for Him, all things consist, and, and we understand that, and I don't think we would have any person in here debate me tonight, on the fact that God made the worlds. And anybody that says differently, and anybody that wants to compromise and say, well, I believe in an evolution, a a theistic evolutionary standpoint, what that is, is that's a, compromising faithless spineless individual because the word of God says that God created the heavens and the earth I believe it was in seven literal days and I don't think God needed years and years and years and millions and millions of years I think God's powerful enough to just speak it and it just happens that's the kind of God that I serve and so we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God did you know that that is the only past event in Hebrews chapter 11. Our faith looks back to that, and in the same way our faith looks back to that and trusts that, do you know what Hebrews chapter 11 is about? It's about faith that is able to see in the future. Faith that is able to say, God, you can do whatever you want to do. God... I know that you have the power, I, I trusted in you that you created the world, so if, if you want to make a rod in my hand, a snake, well, I'll throw it on the ground before it becomes a snake. L- Lord, if, if you want me to leave Haran and leave all my kinsfolk, Lord, I'll do that. Lord, if you want me to build an ark, Lord, if you want me to do that, I've never even seen a raindrop, but if you want, to build, if you want me to build an ark, I'll do that. You know what that is? That's faith that looks forward. Church, Joshua Baptist Church cannot be a church that's looking back. I'm excited about what God's done over the past 33 years. But if we're always looking back, we're going to wreck going forward. We've got to move forward for the cause of Christ. And the world is slipping farther and farther away from God. And, and, and sinners are still on their way, lost and, uh, lost and on their way to a sinner's hell. We can't just say, oh yeah, we had 300 saved last year. We need to be thinking about how we can get more than that saved this year. The Bible is saying, enlarge thy tents and prepare for a great blessing to come. God makes this challenge to many people throughout Scripture. You see, the Bible tells us that, that there, were, there would be those that, uh, that He could do great and mighty things, which we can't even imagine. That, that thou knowest not, the Bible says. There's a process of preparation. It's our faith looking forward to the events that God can do. But there's, number two, the promise of this preparation. What is it that gets us motivated for these types of things? Verse number 3, the Bible says, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. You see, he says, you're going to spill over. You make your tent as large as it can be, and yet you're still going to spill over. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. If you understand what the passage is talking about, this is a, a, most Bible uh, students believe that this is a, A prophetic passage that one day the Gentiles would would be welcome in the kingdom and the house and the family of God. And aren't you glad for what Preacher was preaching on this morning? If you will, just take your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. I just kind of want to read it again because it's so good and it means so much to me. Preacher preached on it this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. But this is a prophetic passage that one day the Gentile would no longer be a stranger in the camp. But they would be part of the, the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse number 12 says that at the time ye were without Christ being aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Well, that's good. That's better than anything I could preach to you tonight we were we were afar off but we were brought nigh to the throne of god by the blood of jesus christ the bible says for he is our peace who hath made both both jew and gentile he hath made them both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, and and the earth shook, and the veil that was in the temple was ripped. You understand that it ripped through and through, meaning that not only the priest had access to God, but the Jew had access to God, and the Gentile had access to God, the man had access to God, the woman had access to God, and, and the middle partition was broken down by the blood of Jesus Christ having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the difference, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two or twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both, both Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross. Having slain the enmity thereby, he eradicated any difference that there was between Jew and Gentile. For in Christ there is no difference between the Jew or the Greek. That's, that's a Bible promise and it was all because of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Verse number 17, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You see, the Jew has the same access that the Gentile has tonight, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? So verse number 4 is speaking directly to, about that. It's, it's saying that, uh, or verse number three is saying that we would be, the, they should inherit the Gentiles, this measly little remnant that there is in Babylon. One day their numbers would grow, and one day God would bless, and God would destroy that. And it's a prophetic passage, no doubt. But I asked the question earlier what makes us motivated towards our faith? I mean, what what gives us the vision for the fact that God might want to do something great in our life? Well, I believe this. The Bible says, for faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The only thing that motivates the Christian to do anything great for God is God saying, hey, I want to do something great for you. You see here, God gave them His word in verse number 3 that something great would happen, but His word was requiring that their faith would take place in verse number 2. It has always been His word that would encourage the Christian to do something great for Him. It's funny what we trust in, isn't it? It's funny whose word we're willing to take. I See, I go down to the bank every once in a while... And I'll walk through the front doors and right there in the corner of the window, my bank has a little sticker. And then I go up to the uh, uh, little kiosk there where the, the, the folks take my money and uh, they, uh, I, you know, I put it in, not as much seems to come back, but I always put it in and there they have FDIC insured. And I guess what that means is it's federally insured and protected by the government. And I've even heard people say, man, if it's not FDIC insured, I won't put my money there. You know, I checked before church. Did you know that our government is $21.7 trillion in debt? Did you know that they have bigger financial burdens than I have? Why would I trust them to insure my money? They can't handle their own. I'll never forget, my older brother went in to a a financial counselor and he said, How much money do you make in a year? And the financial counselor was taken back and said, What do you mean? My brother said, Well, if I make more money than you, it seems like I should be sitting where you're sitting. You see, it's funny who we trust. I I was thinking about this. We go into a fast food restaurant. We go into their bathroom. Usually their bathrooms are dirty. We go in and we we place our order. We look in the kitchen and the floor is dirty. We go and we sit at our table and there's crumbs from the people before us. And yet we order food from them, suspecting that somehow the top of the counter is going to be clean. It's funny who we trust. And yet God says, Prove me now herewith. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you will not be able to receive. And we sit down here and say, well, it's just a really bad world, and I don't know if God's really going to save many sinners now, and I just don't know if we go knock on their door, but they don't seem to respond the way that we used to. You know what the problem is? It's not God, because God's still saying, prove me. Try me. See, is anything too hard for God? God's still saying, hey, I'm still wanting to do a blessing... Uh, I preached a sermon a while back to the Spanish church and it was exceeding abundantly more than you can ask or think. And I said, it's mucho mas abundant mente. Mucho mas abundant mente. I like the way that sounds better than the English version. It's mucho mas abundant mente. You see, and see I've got Spanish people correcting me all over the auditorium. Congratulations, you know Spanish and I just looked it up in the Rayana Valera. Okay, I get you. You see, God's always waiting for the individual that will just totally surrender to him and say, hey God, if your word will say that you want to do something great in my life, I'll take you up on that. And God, if you want to do something great in my life, I don't want my faith to be the limiting factor in this world. You see, God's still wanting to do something. I just don't know if we're willing to let him do it. I want you to see not only the picture of barrenness, I want you to see the preparation for blessing. And then thirdly, The promise of restoration. Now this is why he was getting them prepared. This is why he needed them to enlarge the place of their tent. This is why he needed to tell them that there would be a great blessing coming their way. Because in verse number 5 the Bible says, For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. You see, he's saying, for a moment, I had to turn away from you. And scripture tells us that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. You know, I don't know what kind of father I'd be if I just let my kids get away with anything. And you'd probably not think I was a very good father if I just let them come into the church and play with the microphones. And for some reason, Thomas is really attracted to this right here. I, I, I don't know why. I guess it's because it's a blue light. I don't know. But he comes up here and he wants to play. I would say, no, no, Thomas. And then my girls they want to get on the piano and they want to play the piano and then I just don't know how you would look to look at me if I let my kids run all over the church and just act however they wanted to. Well, how would we how do we think that God's going to let his children get away with everything and anything? He's just simply not going to. He never said that he would. The Bible tells us that As a loving father chasteneth his children, so the Lord will chasteneth whom he loveth. You see, God's going to chasten us. And one of the ways that he chastens us is by removing the power from our lives. Removing his immediate and felt presence in our life. say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean this. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your sins have separated you. So that he will not hear you. You know in Isaiah, later on in the book of Isaiah, the Bible tells us that uh, you will make many prayers, but he will not be able to hear you. What happens? Well, the Lord chastens those whom he loves. And when we begin to act like heathens, he separates from us. And the power that the Christian ought to be enjoying is no longer there. I I taught the teenagers this morning in Sunday school. There is so much joy that is available for the Christian even below the poverty line. Uh, The most most miserable people I know are rich people. And yet, you know, the people that I know are happiest in this world... They they somewhat live paycheck to paycheck, but it's just amazing to see God doing great things in their life. You know, it's like they're still living by daily grace, and and there's just so much joy to be enjoyed in the Christian life. You don't need money, and you don't need fame, and you don't need uh, riches. If you've got God, you really have all that you need. But the Christian that isn't close to God, isn't right with God, doesn't experience that joy. They know nothing about it because. Like David prayed in Psalm 51, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And then he said these words, Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thine Holy Spirit from me. What was David's primary concern? His concern was that God would separate from him. He did not want that to happen, so he he was praying that God would stay with him and keep fellowship with him. We were at the ranch yesterday, and, and my dad's great with Thomas. I think if you had to interview dad and ask him, and he could give an honest answer, Thomas would probably be his favorite, probably because he can't talk right now, but that's definitely what I think. That's why he's my favorite, and um, and Tom, dad's great with Thomas. I mean, he'll just, he'll come into the office, and Thomas comes to the church with us, and and uh, we'll we'll be busy doing work, and Dad will just be sitting in there in, the, in, in his chair, and he'll be rocking Thomas, and he'll have the phone up, and Thomas will be watching that, and he's got his phone in one hand, and the reader's digesting the other, looking for good sermon illustrations for you folks, and he's just in there doing that, and he's great with Thomas. We were at the ranch yesterday, and uh, he was doing something like that, and him and Thomas were spending some time together, and they were in that love seat together, and Dad was rocking him, and... And Dad kind of said, he goes, Whoo, Thomas! Whoo!' And that's kind of universal code for Thomas just did something. And uh, Dad said it as soon as Amy went and got Thomas and uh, grabbed him from his lap. Dad said something about, he said, Well, that'll sure separate fellowship. That's what happens. Once Mama got him cleaned up, put a little of that Johnson and Johnson on him, handed him back to dad, everything was good. You see, the father don't like messing with dirty children. And this passage is one of great promise and great hope and great victory. But I want you to seize your moment. You see, if you know tonight that, that you're not as close to God as you want to be, if you know tonight that your prayers get no higher than the ceiling, if you know tonight that you're not the soul winner that you once were, if you know tonight that you're not near as excited about living the Christian life tomorrow as you used to be when you first got saved, if that's where you are tonight, you're in your moment. I can look back over my life and I can remember moments that kind of stick out to me. I'll never forget scoring my first touchdown. You say, well, what team were you playing for? I don't know. Well, it was peewee football. That's about all I know. I, I don't know if I was running back or quarterback or wide receiver. I don't know any of that. You want to know why I remember my first touchdown? It's because my mom gave me money after the game for scoring the touchdown. And we went to Walmart and I bought fishing lures. And I can tell you the exact color of those fish and lures. I remember my first touchdown. That sticks out to me. I remember the first, probably my most embarrassing moment of my entire life. Uh, my sister was playing for a travel basketball team. that were called the Southwest Magic, and they practiced on Sunday afternoons, and we were in a gym here locally, and, and I was always in the gym with my sister at her practices and at her games. And, and just right, a, right at my reach level, there was this red thing on the wall, and I wasn't good at reading quite yet, but I think it said something like fire. And there was this lever that read this, pull here. Well, I was just following instructions. (laughs) Why would you put that on that lever if you don't want kids to pull it? So I pulled the lever. Well, the fire department thought it wasn't as funny as I did. And I'll never forget that was an embarrassing moment in my life. I'll never forget that uh, the first time me and Amy went on a date, it was a blind date. And uh, she came out of the dorm. It was a uh, Sisk Hall, I believe, and there's this red brick uh, concrete there that we're not, we're, the boys aren't allowed to step on. You kind of have to give the girls their distance, you know, and their space, so, so we weren't allowed to step on the red bricks, and I'm standing there, and I remember seeing her come down the way. It was just a blind date. We were just set up by somebody. It wasn't supposed to be any big deal, and and uh, that night, I'll never forget how good a time we had. Anytime the conversation died down at all or got a little awkward, as first dates tend to do, uh, I'll never forget what I did. I kind of went into it with a plan, and I, I had this imaginary note card that I kept pulling out of my pocket, and I would just do this. So you'd get all silent, and I'd go, Do you have any pets? And at first, I didn't explain the card to her. She just thought I was being really weird. But but uh, she didn't know what I was doing, reaching into my pocket. But by the end of the night, I would just say, yeah, yeah I really did this. You can ask her, Dad. dad. <laughs> you know what? She loved it. Yeah, admittedly, she's a little bit weird. But I probably rubbed off on her all night long. Anytime the conversation got a little weird, I just so uh, where do you live? Uh, and I, I, The whole night we did this, and she loved it. We were laughing the whole night. i never forget how good a time we had on that first date. Yeah, I, I, there's some things that stick out to me in my life that, that I'll just never, never forget. I'll never forget the first time I saw and I held my daughter. It was a life-changing moment. And I'm not the corny guy. Like, I'm not the, the dad that gets all mushy gushy. You know, if my daughters get hurt, I tell them to suck it up. If, if they're bleeding, I'm just like, oh, I rub some dirt in it. I'm not the mushy gushy guy, but I'll never forget the sense of pride that came with that day. I never wanted to be the guy that was just so overly, like, uh, annoying about my daughters, but anybody that came to the hospital that day, I just told them. This is the most beautiful kid I've ever seen in my life. I mean, yours are probably really ugly, but man, mine looks like a supermodel. I mean, you should replace the Gerber baby right now because this is definitely an upgrade over that baby. And I was just so incredibly proud. There are really only a few moments in life I can look back over and these just stuck out to me. I, I remember a few spiritual moments in my life. Like, like, spiritual moments, moments that meant a great deal to me. I remember at Timberline Baptist Youth Camp walking the aisle and getting saved. That was a moment that stuck out to me. I remember surrendering to preach right here. It was actually right there on that pew and we wrote on a white hanky. I announced my call to preach right here. I'll never forget that. I still have the hanky. I'll never forget it. You know, in my life... There has been a few altar moments that changed me. Not many. You know, I've come to an altar several times in my life. But there have been some moments at this altar and at other altars that have changed me. I'll never forget Pensacola Christian Camp uh, or uh, Christian College. It was a youth camp meant for the kids. I went down and I prayed a prayer that I'll never forget. It changed me. It was a real moment. Actually, just this last year at Spiritual Leadership Conference, I had another one of those moments where the Lord just spoke to me and, and just me and him got alone and we did some business with one another. And it just, it just changed me permanently and it just, I'll never forget it. I'm not up here tonight just bragging on my moments. What I'm up here doing is I'm trying to get you to think of yours. What are your moments? Because the entire reason that God put the children of Israel through this small moment was so that he could shower his mercy and his everlasting love on them. Read it, verse number 7. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face. From thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Seize your moment. And if this is one of those moments, I don't care how long it takes at an altar. I don't care who may look at you at an altar. I don't care how many verses of invitation we need to sing. If this is your moment, seize it. Because every Christian needs to seize their moments when they're there.